0: Or a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're
2: grown sleep tight stories parents if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids i'm gonna let you into a little secret the koala moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine with original kids bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations every episode has been specially designed to make bedtime's a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
3: Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, Psychoactive listeners. Today's show is about ayahuasca. i been meaning to do this one for quite a while, and there's a whole wide world of experts to call on in this area these days because ayahuasca has become such a thing. You know, a psychedelic plant medicine from South America, primarily the Amazon area. But today I have one of the world's great experts on this, who has been a scholar and an activist for like 20 years. Her name is Bielabate. She's Brazilian. She's a anthropologist, PhD in anthropology, grew up in Brazil, but she's also taught in Mexico and currently lives in the United States now. She's worked with Rick Doblin's organization, MAPS, as the public education and culture specialist. She's been affiliated with other academic institutions, but her main gig for the last four or five years is she founded and directs an organization called Chicago. CRUNA, which is really one of the outstanding organizations working on ayahuasca and other plant medicines in the world. So, Bia, thanks so much for joining me on Psychoactive.
1: Thank you for having me, Ethan. I've been following your work for a long time. It's an honor to be here with you today.
3: I'm trying to think back. I think we first met, maybe it was in Sao Paulo, Brazil 15 years ago. I think I was giving a talk at the law school down there, and you ended up coming to lunch with me and the, the professors or whatever. And then since that time, I've seen you at Drug Policy Alliance events. I've seen you all over the place. And really, just recently, earlier this summer, we crossed paths in Mexico City at the Conference of the Alcohol and Drug Historian Society, which was fascinating. And you were one of the keynote speakers there. So, you know, your reputation just keeps growing. And I have tremendous admiration for the work that you're doing. So let's dive into this. I mean, the first question I got to ask you is, why have you, how did you land up um, devoting, really, I guess, all of your adult life so far to ayahuasca and plant medicine?
1: Thank you for the comment. Actually, I met you in the United States. I remember well, distinctively, because you were the first person that I came up with a little brochure and caught your attention when you were super busy running the DPA conference in 2007. And I wrote a little project and I said that I had a dream to have a nonprofit in the United States. And you sat down and you looked at it with like cyborg eyes in three seconds, read everything (laughs) and gave me like five words of advice, tapped my shoulder, said, good luck, and said some positive things and ran off to the next business meeting with all the in your glory, in your times in the DPA, running the whole show. And so it's so great for me. This is 2007 and then cut to 2022. And I do have a nonprofit in the United States and I did receive your encouragement. And it does feel like a dream come true for me. So
3: that means I get to feel a little bit proud of what you're doing. I didn't even realize that part of it, Bia, but that's pretty cool. So, yeah, so tell me, go back. You
1: You should definitely feel proud. And, you know, I've been realizing that how influential those conferences were for me. And it was at that conference that I also met Rick Doblin and started to volunteer for MAPS, which I did for 10 years. And the DPA definitely helped a lot of young scholars and activists in Latin America do this bridge with the United States because we're kind of isolated. You know, in Mexico or Brazil, it's hard to come to the English-speaking world. And that conference really played a role for a lot of us to get to know contacts and explore connections. I started this work really out of personal interest, basically because I took sacred plants. And you, you said hallucinogens were not anti that term, but we kind of prefer to use sacred plants or plant medicines or psychedelic plant medicines or sacred medicines, medicines. The idea of hallucinogen gives a bit the impression that it's some kind of fake
3: Yeah, I'm sorry. I realized that as soon as the word came out of my mouth, I realized, God, that popped out from an old part of my brain. Like hallucinogens, there's not really the term of art now. It is psychedelics or plant medicines or those two in combination. Sorry about that.
1: (laughs) No problem. I mean, they are just words after all. But we like, yeah, we have a lot of respect for these plants that are very influential. So we use other terms. But I had personal experiences that were pretty influential in my early 20s. I tried mushrooms in Mexico and peyote and also tried LSD and when i was 25 or 26 tried ayahuasca in brazil and it was i think a lot of us have this feeling that it's like arriving home somehow that you just get in touch with this reality that feels so incredibly familiar and so sacred and so profound and so inspiring and that gives you a kind of sense of comfort of belonging to something bigger than yourself and to kind of fitting into this magic and mystery that is Being alive and the gratitude of having a body, having a spirit, having a soul, and being here in this journey of so much uncertainty towards what there is after us, and just somehow gives this profound feeling of some kind of existential belonging. And so for me, it has been really a personal journey that then inspired my intellectual curiosity as a kind of organic move that departs from this personal interest.
3: Well, so uh, let me ask you this, and let's just go backward. For those in our audience who really don't know much about ayahuasca— I mean, I introduced it by saying it is this plant medicine, this psychedelic that comes from the Amazonian region, which presumably means parts of Brazil, Ecuador, Peru, Colombia. I mean, I guess it maybe borders a little bit. It must be little parts of Venezuela or Bolivia where you can also probably find it. But just say a little more about, you know, what do we know about its history? I mean, do we know if the use goes back hundreds of years or thousands of years? I mean, I think Westerners only became aware of it in the mid-19th century. But what's known from historians and others and anthropologists when they look back at the history of this?
1: Yeah, so ayahuasca is a combination normally of two plants, although there is a variation of different admixtures plants that you can add to ayahuasca. Normally, it's the combination what a lot of people know of Banisteriopsis caapi, so that's the vine, and Psychotria viridis, that is the leaf or a shrub that you use the leaf. So traditionally for Amazonian indigenous people, the vine is kind of the base of ayahuasca. And then you can add different admixture plants. So Psychotria is (laughs) chakurna. That's why we named our nonprofit after ayahuasca. It's a tribute to ayahuasca, which is our plant teacher. And it's used across different countries of the Amazon. And I think you have named all of them correctly by different indigenous people. It's not very clear when its use started, and there is a lot of controversy around that. I mean, traditionally, people were saying that this was used for thousands of years or 5,000 years, and then this information has been disputed. Then there is some more recent archaeological evidence. But anyhow, it's not exactly known, and there isn't a date that people across the border identify. So one way to name it... Well,
3: let me ask you this. You know, when I think about, like, you can see, you know, there's little statuettes of people with the bulge of the coca leaf in their cheek going back thousands of years, right? Or you have archaeologists who find cannabis in people's bodies or their pouches that are dug up, you know, that are thousands of years old. There was a news article not long ago about evidence of ayahuasca and also, I think, coca being found in the bodies of children who had been sacrificed in Inca ceremonies, um, I don't know, years or so or something like that. But so far as we know, is that the oldest archaeological evidence that we have of the use?
1: Yeah, as I said, it's kind of disputed. We have published an article in our site by Giorgio Samarini talking about the fake news of the antiquity of ayahuasca. It's not as clear, for example, San Pedro or peyote have more clear archaeological evidence a lot of this materials in the Amazon are not really easy to track. Personally, I have chosen to use the expression, it has been used since immemorial times. And I guess Uh it's not really, you know, relevant exactly how long it has been used. The fact is that it's spread throughout the Americas, and it's considered a sacred plant for different indigenous groups. I think in the mid 80s, There was an author that calculated that over 70 indigenous groups used ayahuasca. More recently, we published an article that an indigenous activist of Brazil mentioned there's 160 groups, although that's also hard to classify exactly how many because the way that colonizers identified indigenous people and divided them into different ethnic groups does not really match necessarily the way these groups classify themselves, and they have also changed names through history. So it's such a huge universe. Which plants, which groups, for how long? All of this is part of the the incredible richness of the ayahuasca culture.
3: What makes, I think, also the ayahuasca a little different from, say, peyote or psilocybin mushrooms and things like that, is that it requires putting together two distinct plants, Right? And there's not you just take the one or take the other. Somebody had to figure out one way or another that you had to combine these things in order to unleash its kind of special properties. Is that right?
1: Yes, correct. And that's also part of the fascination of ayahuasca. If you imagine the millions of plants that exist on the Amazon forest, and if this was done by error and trial, how many attempts would there be to actually find this combination? And considering one of the plants is not really active orally by itself, When you ask Indigenous people, how do you know this and how did you find this out? And you know the answer they give, right? Do you, Ethan?
3: No. What is it?
1: The plants taught me.
3: I I thought you were going to say that. Right. I thought the plant spoke to them. It raises the question whether or not, I mean, there's no way to know, I guess, whether the properties of the merger of these two plants was first discovered by one tribe and then spread from there, or whether it was sort of coincidentally discovered in different parts of the Amazon over years by groups having nothing to do with the other. Do we have any idea which was true?
1: Yeah, there's also controversies about that. I mean, I have published several books on ayahuasca and we have done that as well, like publish one article and then later on some other person say something else and you also publish that article. So it looks like it came from the Colombian Amazon, but there's also kind of lack of clarity exactly where did it originate from. And there's also some people trying to do some DNA work to sort of pursue different vines, also something interesting to consider if you consider there is this whole boom and this whole trendiness around ayahuasca, is that there's actually not a lot of botanical work done around the plant species itself. They were identified, as you said, in, I think it was 1859 or something.
3: I looked this up, 1851, the Victorian naturalist Richard Spruce.
1: That's by Spruce, correct. Was the first
3: of the Westerners to uh, come across this.
1: Yes, he, he identified the vine. More recently, some researchers in Brazil have suggested that we need to reclassify the plant, that there are also other species and variations. So there's also that kind of depth to it. Like if you go to indigenous people and you try to ask them, you know, what is this vine? Or how many vines do you recognize? And they'll tell you they'll recognize six or eight or ten or 15 or 16 types, you know, this is the red monkey one, this is the parrot one, this is different names. And then you bring a botanist and show it to them. They don't recognize necessarily the difference. And so there is a challenge of like ethnomedicine to identify exactly which types of vine. And there has been a lot of exploration around different uses and the practice expanding a lot but not so much on the plants itself. So there's a lot of rich areas for study and for inquiry. And there's, it's a vibrant field of study. And actually, people are starting to do these kinds of studies more and more.
3: Now, when you say the vine, I mean, first, of all, I looked at photographs of this. It almost looks like a snake winding itself around a tree from some of the photos I saw. But when you say the vine, that's one of the two ingredients. And is that the part that contains the drug DMT, which I guess is the key psychoactive ingredient? Or is that the other one? That no, that's the DMT.
1: other one. That's the Psychotria or another admixture plants. Also, our Western explanation puts a kind of centrality into the DMT, which is the visionary element. And it's only active orally with the combination of the vine, the beta But this doesn't also match indigenous explanations smoothly because traditionally the base of ayahuasca is the vine. The vine is also called ayahuasca. And so the preparation of ayahuasca and other admixture plants is called ayahuasca, and just the vine is also called ayahuasca. And you add different admixtures, and for us, there has been a lot of emphasis on the DMT, but the tradition is normally the base, the central element is the vine. And there's also people that have cooked just the vine itself and reported psychoactive effects, which doesn't make a lot of sense, according to our theories. So there's a lot of, you know, interesting and fascinating things. It's, as they say, a science, the science of indigenous people, a ciencia de ayahuasca, the ayahuasca science. It's a study, it's a universe.
3: So basically when, I mean, I've done this a few times, but when we drink that tea, the ayahuasca tea, which I guess is the way it's typically consumed. Nobody's going to drink that just for the taste. I mean, it's oftentimes quite unappealing. At least I find it that way. Maybe some people grow to like it, but it contains these two basic ingredients. But obviously, every concoction varies depending upon the particular recipe, depending upon where it comes from. So you're going to have the core elements there, but it's going to vary Quite a lot, depending upon which region of the Amazon it's coming from, about how people are putting it in. I imagine that different people who cook this up put in different other little additional ingredients for one reason or another. I mean, is that right? It's just there's like no limit to the types of ayahuasca flavors and tastes, all sort of embellishing around that core mixture of the two ingredients.
1: Yes, true. As it seems, you have also been drinking some ayahuasca for a while. So as you know, the taste can be pretty challenging and it's part of like the personality, so to speak, of ayahuasca. It's part of the ayahuasca experience to feel that taste that is this like kind of feels like visceral, deep (laughs) penetration of odors and textures that is part of the kingdom of nature that we're normally not aware of. It's hard to describe, but I have a lot of respect for the taste of ayahuasca. In Brazil, there's one of the ayahuasca religions that they drink ayahuasca and then they eat like a gum on top or some kind of uh, maybe orange (laughs) or something to take off the taste. Different people do that, mint or whatever. I think it's part of the experience, and we should feel it and just taste it and sit with it. And what you said is correct, depending on the soil, depending on the age of the ayahuasca plant. And also, there are rituals to cook it, and there's different beliefs around it the time, the proper time of harvesting, the proper time of cooking, the proper time of planting, and different regions have different flavors. One thing that is interesting is that it grows very fast in Hawaii. In Hawaii, there's a whole culture of growing ayahuasca in the United States. Of course, it's not entirely above board, let's say. And then the ayahuasca from Hawaii is known to have kind of a sweeter taste. And in the beginning, some people, at least in Brazil, in the Santo Daime religion, they were kind of a little bit prejudiced against the Daime or ayahuasca from Hawaii. But with time, it grew popularity and people learned to appreciate more. And that's also, this is interesting. So that's more like the topics that I understand more is the culture around it and, you know, people's beliefs. And that's kind of thing that caught my attention for years.
3: Uh huh. So let me ask you this: We've done a lot of episodes on psycho. I had Paul Stamets talking about mushrooms and psilocybin mushrooms, and Mike Jay talking about peyote and San Pedro, mescaline, and Michael Pollan was on, and uh, you know we've done a whole range. This is the first one ayahuasca. But I remember years ago, one of the other early researchers, going back to the '80s or '90s in this field, I think it was it was Charlie Grobe, a professor at UCLA, and I think it was him who said that many people regard ayahuasca as the queen. Of all the psychedelic plant medicines. And I don't know if you would agree or use that terminology, but there's a sense of ayahuasca having a certain specialness that maybe from people outside. I mean, obviously, people, Native American church, you know, for them, peyote is their sacrament and we have that sort of thing. But there's a kind of something special about ayahuasca that some people sometimes see as transcending even the other plant medicines. What do you think?
1: Well, I'm kind of biased because. <laughs> as you said, you know, dedicated years of my life to this subject. I drank ayahuasca and long story short, I got completely fascinated and I thought that was it. And I was kind of obsessed for 20 years.
3: (laughs) And you had already done other substances before that, right? I had already
1: tried other psychedelics, yes. It was it, you know, I thought that was it. And I got really, yeah, dedicated and I just wanted to drink it and talk about it and think about it and talk to people and naturally, I became an anthropologist studying ayahuasca because I was so interested. And I just decided that I wanted to go to the Amazon and visit the sources and go directly to the fields. And for me, it has been like my main ally and friend. But I think that's, you know, we have to be careful with those kinds of things because there isn't, such a thing. You know, this is the one or the best. I mean, this is the one for me, or this is the one that now serves me better. And this is a friend, this is an ally, this is a teacher, this is a kindred spirit that I am aligned with. And for different people, they have different tastes. I like to think, and this is also your influence, that there is some analogy between drugs and foods. And so different people have different needs and different tastes and different body complexions. And they are kind of from different groups. So some people, you go on a restaurant together and each person is going to have a certain combination of foods on their plate. And that is the expression of their being through the food. The same happens with drugs. Each person is going to have some kind of better familiarity or friendship with certain kind of substances. So there's people that just don't want ayahuasca and don't like ayahuasca or drink ayahuasca once and feel that was it and they never want to go again. There's other people that don't want to drink at all. And then there's some of us that drink it and, you know, never get tired of drinking it and start to walk this path (laughs) of following the teachings of ayahuasca. And so I do think it's a very powerful and magnificent and impressive substance and I like to think that it has some spiritual power, but I, I, I would be reluctant to say that it's the queen of all substances. For one thing, tobacco in Amazonian shamanism is a very pervasive and strong substance. Tobacco is used across the Americas in different countries and accompanies ayahuasca or just by itself. So tobacco in many ways is predominant.
3: But used in a way, I should just be clear for our audience, that is essentially psychedelic, right? Taken in a very potent form that's not like people smoking cigarettes or cigars.
1: No, it's not cigarettes. It's It's the plant itself. And it's been used on multiple ways as well. You can have pastes or you can have enemas or you can smoke it, inhale it through different combinations with different plants. So tobacco is very varied and also has different meanings. It can be used in rituals, but also kind of as a social lubricant. So there's many different plants. And also, I don't use the word psychedelic exactly, but psychoactive for sure. This is also part of the challenge, like the very categories that we have to describe the substances don't necessarily mirror traditional indigenous ways of describing them because we kind of tend to separate them into these boxes like is this medical or is this recreational is this sacred is this profane is this nutrition is this identity we separate the uses of substances into different categories and different schedule of drugs and that's not how traditionally shamanism operates and there's a lot of blurring of categories between what is healing or sociality or identity or medicine, and these things get mixed together. And so it's hard to express and talk about those things in our terms. And I have been interested in trying to find out these other classifications of substances, which I think teach us also about how to think reality. They teach us how to think our own categories and our own paradigms. And through the study of these plants and these cultures, we can revisit our own values and our own ways of understanding the world. That's what I find it so interesting and endless in terms of knowledge.
3: A few things. One is, I know that in first, I mean, both from what I've read and then also my own personal experience. But I remember the first time I did ayahuasca, there was a telepathic element to it. And that's something I've read a fair bit about, about people under the influence of ayahuasca envisioning, feeling themselves present at a place very physically distant from where they actually are, having a conversation or being a witness to something. And I wonder, is that, do you think that's somewhat of a unique element for ayahuasca for many people or you think it goes across all the psychedelics?
1: I know that one of the first terms that was used to describe ayahuasca by the earlier researchers was calling it telepatine. So this idea that it does have telepathic elements to it has been described in the literature. A lot of things have been reported, like, for example, People finding lost objects or even having access to information that they were looking for and they didn't know. There's also this other phenomenon that is common on shamanism that would be like this kind of confession, (laughs) let's say. Somebody has been cheating on their partner and then they drink ayahuasca and, you know, they just confess or something. Like this ability to show the truth (laughs) or somebody that stole something and... Other people drink ayahuasca and see who was the thief or narrate that they visit cities they have never been to and describe in detail routes to get from one place to another. That is the route. And why do you know that? Because I saw it in ayahuasca. So I know that this is something that there is a large amount of reports I don't know exactly the equivalent for peyote or psilocybin, but I have the impression from my readings and publications that this kind of phenomena is common to this sort of substance that comes with this idea of... The general principle is that this reality that we see is apparent. It's the surface, let's say. It's the material world that we have a hold of. And when you take the substances, you're able to do a transit and somehow get access to this invisible world, this world of the ancestors or of the spirits of the dead people, the world beyond, the spiritual world, the invisible world. And somehow have a chance to do a trance that gets you in touch and then you get in touch with this other reality that in fact guides the material and apparent reality. And then you're getting in touch with the essence of this reality that is the material one. And this other world, this invisible world, is also a world that has agency and that is alive and that has the plant spirits. They are plant spirits. They have intention. They have agency. They have personalities. They have intentionality. They have subjectivity. And you're able to communicate with those plants, and learn about this intelligence. And then there's a lot of other things that go together with all of this, that it's kind of complicated and dense. This different classifications of nature and culture are common to different Amerindian modalities. So I don't think that's just exclusive to ayahuasca, but there's similar reports, variations.
3: There's also the association with seeing the jaguar right? You read all these reports of people taking ayahuasca and seeing the jaguar. What do you make of that whole phenomenon? Is it just purely about drug set and setting and that the idea was planted there before? Although you would hear of reports of people who had never heard of any association between ayahuasca and seeing the jaguar during their visions, but who see it nonetheless. What's your view?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I've been studying this for 25 years and Frankly, there's times that I still think that I didn't leave the first grade. I don't know what to make of it. It's very complicated. I try not to answer all things and I study cultural things. It's okay if everybody sees jaguars, it's fine. Or if everybody sees palaces, it's it's interesting. It's mind-blowing. But what does that mean? Is the palace that I'm seeing the same palace that an indigenous person is seeing? Or I don't know you know, a singer that is like a person in the Middle East saw a palace. Is that the same palace that I'm seeing? And what does that palace mean to that person? A lot of Pano groups, they will say when you drink ayahuasca, and then you see at the beginning, maybe this geometrical patterns, and then like neuroscientists and researchers will have a certain explanation and say, well, that's your, you no, know, your eye and this and that and your brain and they have those explanations. But if you ask this Queenie Queen person, he will say, well, that is the color, the design of the skin of this original snake that inhabited the world, that was ultimately how we got to be humans. This primordial snake, I was, it was a gift from the snakes to man, And you're seeing the skin of the snake. So, If you say, you know, you see a snake and a Huni Queen see a snake, it's not the same meaning. So I'm less interested in why is everybody seeing snakes, but what do snakes mean on different cultural settings? And that, I really believe in anthropology for this, because it's not the same for everybody. And so what one person sees is interpreted differently in different cultures and has different meanings. And there is a great amount of variation to all of that. And There isn't just one ayahuasca culture.
3: We'll be talking more after we hear this ad.
4: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When your child fights sleep, it
0: can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second-grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep tight stories. Listen to sleep tight stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
2: podcasts. Parents. If you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums, but I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby, with over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations. Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app,
5: will be a match. I promise.
3: One other thing I think that's true of ayahuasca is that it seems that one comes across, there is some of this, but relatively little of the sort of casual use. You think about kids, teenagers, people in their 20s, you know, doing mushrooms, doing LSD, even sometimes doing mescaline or things like this, or ketamine for that matter, doing it by themselves with some friends. It can be done casually, can also be done in a very traditional setting, in a very spiritual setting. But with ayahuasca, and I've read that there are some cases where people will use ayahuasca casually in some parts of Latin America, but by and large, it seems that it's overwhelmingly done in group settings where oftentimes with some type of shaman, shaman or a leader of some sort and with the idea that you need to treat this one, this plant medicine with particular respect and that there is a kind of quasi-spiritual, religious, communal element to it that is true of the others, but that seems to be much more so in the case of ayahuasca. Yes? No?
1: I agree with you. I find this... Super interesting. And I have also used this argument to law enforcement. And if, if you think like, let's say in Brazil, carnival, what happens? Number of people that get drunk or do something idiotic during carnival, it's thousands of people and it's absolutely legal. <laughs> and if you just think about parties in the city, a city, I'm from Sao Paulo, the number of parties or bars that people go and how many people drink or get killed or have get into car accidents or Ayahuasca you have people are using it across the city in Sao Paulo today I think there must be at least like 60 or more rituals every weekend and people are using it in sacred ways in respectful ways with certain kinds of controls with certain kind of parameters and there is a whole protocol and etiquette and culture around it and it has spread through the globe in this kind of way so there has been A diversification of number of rituals, the ayahuasca culture or different lineages, traditions adapt to different parts of the globe. And in different parts of the globe, there's different kinds of rituals. So you go in the United States, you can see a group of like American veterans, you know, all men drinking ayahuasca together and they hear certain kind of music and do a certain kind of integration and develop a certain kind of protocol that makes sense to them. But it's very ritualistic. It's ceremonial. It has preparation. It has integration. It has some kind of screening. It has some kind of culture around it and people talk about it. And then you go, you know, in the Middle East, you have other kinds of ayahuasca rituals and you have Hare Krishna communities using ayahuasca, and you have millionaires in LA hiring private ayahuasca facilitators to help them think about their career and their investments and their creativity and all kinds of things. And it always spread with some kind of music, some kind of integration, some kind of doctrine or spiritual belief, this common idea that ayahuasca is a plant, a teacher a spirit plant that it's it can teach you, it can guide you, and that you have to obey ayahuasca's requests, that you have to do certain kinds of diets, that you have to have a certain kind of behavior before you drink it and after you drink it, that you can't mix it with other substances, that you need to have a sort of reverence and respect. Yes, I completely agree to that. This is something interesting about ayahuasca that is As an anthropologist, I have seen the ability of ayahuasca culture to mold and adapt and transform and combine to different settings. And so different communities that have different kinds of beliefs have been able to use ayahuasca and develop rituals that make sense and help them study their religious traditions better and also help people connect more to their own roots and to their own identities. And so a lot of people that have some kind of indigenous heritage or come from Puerto Rico and is a brown person in Puerto Rico that was brought up to think poorly of himself because he's brown and because he's kind of indigenous, but the family is trying to, like, clean it up and make that person feel like white. And this person goes to an ayahuasca ritual and sees the connections that they have to the land and to their ancestors and to their own sources and traditions and have tried to rescue those and get in touch with this. And this happens with Indigenous people, too, because it's very hard to be Indigenous in this contemporary world. And so, for example, there is an organization in Acre, in one of the capitals of Brazil, that has like a nonprofit space, educational space that different indigenous people come to learn Portuguese or math or accountability and study in the city. And they do like intercultural rituals where they drink ayahuasca together And helps them strengthen their cultural identity and become indigenous and be indigenous and maintain that indigenity and develop it more. So this is also part of the beauty and the power of ayahuasca.
3: You know, sometimes when people ask me in the U.S., so what is ayahuasca? And I'll ask them, so have you ever heard of peyote? And they'll say, yeah, you know, how it's used by the Native American church. Yeah, yeah, I I heard about that. Right. And I say, well, this is kind of an Amazonian version of peyote. You know, it's the kind of analogy I use to explain it to some Americans who haven't heard of it. But one of the things is in Brazil, right, you do have these three, what are they called, syncretist churches. But just explain a little bit about how that came about, that these, I guess, quasi-Catholic, is kind of integrating ayahuasca as a sacrament into sort of a Catholic church ceremony.
1: Yeah, these are, we call them Brazilian ayahuasca religions or Brazilian ayahuasca churches. The main ones are the Santo Daime, the União do Vegetal, or UDV, and Barquinha. And they are a combination of, of course, indigenous shamanism and Christian elements and also European esotericism that came to Brazil through the colonizers and some also Afro-Brazilian influences. And so each one has a specific ritual and sets of beliefs, but on a larger scale, you could understand all of them as kind of a similar phenomena that has a strong Christian influence. And the Brazilian state has recognized these groups as legitimate religions and regulated the use of ayahuasca in Brazil. There has been a strong process of like 25 years, and the first regulations were in the early 80s, and the last official resolution was in 2010. And it was a really strong and interesting process where representatives of the religions and scholars and academics and government officials sat together and came to certain agreements on what would be the most basic rules that are necessary to follow and sort of made a civil pact that these groups would keep these uses under control And it was interesting because the government officials that were studying this phenomena, they also, some of them, partaked in the rituals. That's the Brazilian magic. (laughs) (laughs) I would love it to happen in the United States. It's happening, though. We can talk more about that later. (laughs) But yeah, so that's a specific phenomenon. And the UDV and the Santo Daime have expanded to the United States, and they have gained the religious recognition here in the United States.
3: I think the UDV, right, there was a Supreme Court decision, I think eight to nothing, that recognized the First Amendment right of religion applied to the practice of UDV, that I think opened up the doors in the U.S. at that time.
1: Yes, the UDV had that, and also the Santo Dime in the state of Oregon. And then, yes, some other branches throughout the United States also got that recognition. And it's a bit of an interesting paradox because these religions, in a way, fit more the Western sort of stereotype of a religion and understanding that check the boxes of, you know, both court expectations or IRS ones of what a religion has to have. And as such, it's easier to classify them as churches than other uses that would be historically more old and Traditional, such as shamanism, that don't have things like, you know, a main a religious leader or a main doctrine or a main religious book or a religious calendar or catechism. Well,
3: I mean, you also had a feeling when the Supreme Court justices were writing that decision, they wanted to make sure they weren't opening up a Pandora's box because lots of people had tried to claim that they were part of a marijuana church. And I think they were worried that if the arguments that they made to allow the UDV were too open ended, it could lead to tens of millions of Americans claiming the right to use psychedelic drugs for religious purposes. Now, you know, there's another thing. We oftentimes think about psychedelic drugs as being things that kind of open up our better side. Right, that 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 are that make us more empathic, that make us more generous, that you know more insightful, all this sort of stuff. But I know I want to make two counterpoints to what I just said. I remember there's two British Brazilian experts that I think you probably know both of them. One, Anthony Henman, who's an ethnographer anthropologist, and then there's Edward McRae, another British Brazilian who's been a professor in Salvador in Brazil. But one of them I think has said to me, you know, Ethan, be careful about assuming these drugs always lead to good. One of these guys made the point that. Under the military dictatorship in Brazil in the 1960s, I think, that you also had security officials, right, people who were engaged in torturing and killing suspected communists and radicals and all this sort of stuff who participated in their own. Ayahuasca ceremonies. And for them, it became a way of reinforcing them and doing these horrific jobs where they were torturing and killing people and then going home to their wives and kids that night. And the second thing I think about is with the UDV more recently, which is the most orthodox of the uh, ayahuasca based churches, and it's anti homosexual and it's highly sexist, and women are supposed to have only a limited role. And so, what's your thoughts about how this plays out in the church ceremonies? Would you see the Santo Daime thing as sort of a net? positive in the world? Would you be much more skeptical about the UDV because of their values? What's your sense?
1: Oh, my God, Ethan.
3: (laughs) Hey, go for it. uh, Pull no punches.
1: Well, uh... You know, I have been bummed out myself. I guess I was born and raised in Brazil, that is very patriarchal and very Catholic and very conservative. And you sort of like go with the flow, right? Because that's the way things are. And as I moved to the United States and became an immigrant in California, I was felt really empowered to come out as queer and kind of openly talk about the fact that I have a wife and speak my truth. And that has been really an intense process. I sort of did a conference to celebrate coming out as queer because I met my partner in a conference. So in 2019, we did a big conference called Queer in Psychedelics, where I came out as queer. And, you know, it was a tribute to her because we had been together many years without me saying anything in public. And In this conference, we also published this article (laughs) the next day after the conference because I wanted the conference to go well. (laughs) We exposed the UDV has this document that is super anti-gay and saying all kinds of absurd claims like, oh, this will endanger the future of humanity and we have to be careful as if the human race is almost about to get extinct. I have been denouncing also, there is one... French leader that is based in the Peruvian Amazon, Jacques Mabie, that has expressed very strong homophobic views and has all kinds of strange things like exorcism rituals for the souls of aborted babies and, you know, has expressed support to Trump. And there's a lot of, you know, complicated stuff in the ayahuasca world. There's also some conspiracy theories that in the plant medicine community can get pretty ugly with the conspiracy theories. So yes, it's very complicated and there is a lot of division. And what we have to say about that is that ayahuasca is part of the world. It's not because you drink ayahuasca that you're going to be all different. To put it like in a more shamanic or spiritual lenses, there's everything in ayahuasca. There's good and bad, and you can take it in, into different directions. It can be kind of neutral. You can take ayahuasca on different angles and you can have people drinking ayahuasca to have more power, to seduce women, to gain more money, to have more domination over others. So it's really not a magical pill that you just drink it and then all of a sudden we're all the same and we're all nice. And also people have different values about what is good or bad, what is right or wrong. So maybe they don't think they're doing anything wrong. This basic exercise of trying to have more empathy and seeing the world through the lenses of others, right? This ability to try to think how does things look on the other end. And so I do think that it has immense tremendous healing And the reason why I dedicated my whole life to studying ayahuasca and that I have been on this field for 25 years and published 25 books is not because I think that ayahuasca is something that is helping lunatics become more lunatic or greedy people become more rich, but (laughs) rather because I think it does help a lot of people and it does have incredible healing potentials. And I personally think I am a much better person. I actually think myself as a human because of ayahuasca. It really helped me become more human and have more sense of respect for being alive. And that's why it's popular, because it's helping a lot of people.
3: But look, when it comes to this stuff, I mean, now you have, right, we know all the reports about the spiritual benefits and this and people's life transformations, but there's now more and more studies, including some that, you know, give some people ayahuasca, some people some form of placebo, which are finding all sorts of mental health benefits and possibly even physical health benefits. So I came across a few of them. One say that ayahuasca could be helpful in alleviating hard-to-treat depression. Another one finding some success in reducing suicidality. Another one that that may help deal with mood and anxieties, or especially neuroticism, negative emotionality. So what can you tell us about the studies that are coming out now that are being done by research scientists in the same way that they're working with psilocybin and MDMA?
1: Well, I want to recommend people to buy our books. And I can share PDFs. They are sometimes expensive or inaccessible. But I'm always happy to share materials for research and for non-commercial use. So we published two different books on ayahuasca. Well, actually three. One is called Ayahuasca Healing and Science. The other is called The Therapeutic Use of Ayahuasca. And another one is in Spanish, Ayahuasca y Salud, Ayahuasca and Health. And we have published different studies that study all these kinds of things. So depression is one of the things that ayahuasca has been more used to. Anxiety, of course, and also to treat different drug-related problems and alcohol-related problems. That's another of the big uses of ayahuasca. There's been research for different ailments like eating disorders. There's also different kinds of uses for grief or just in general as well-being. That's also the betterment of people, let's say, not any specific disease, but identity and psychological well-being. My partner has done her PhD about... How ayahuasca has helped gay and lesbian people cope with issues of, you know, struggling issues of identity and self-esteem and self-love. So there has been a lot of research on the potential benefits of ayahuasca for multiple things, for cessation to smoke, tobacco. A little bit like ayahuasca can adapt to different cultures and and niches. It also has different (laughs) utilities for different kinds of diseases. When I wanted to publish our book with Springer, the first one, I wanted to call it the therapeutic uses of ayahuasca. And Springer said, well, you know, that's not very good because it's, it's less strong. You should say the therapeutic use, it's more, you know, it gives a stronger message. But I said, well, that's really not accurate because there's multiple uses. And again, it's part of this challenge of systems that I was talking before, because the traditional concepts of disease involve the relationship of one with oneself, with kin, with family, with the community, with society at large, and with the world of the non-humans, this invisible world. So disease is some kind of imbalance on all of those factors, and the way to correct that to bring health again is to work on all of those dimensions. And there's different kinds of plants and different kinds of combinations. So it's a much more holistic affair. Then sometimes on Western thinking, that is just like one pill for one specific disease. When traditionally among indigenous people, traditional communities, the idea of disease involves all of these other dimensions. And these plants are allies on rebuilding all of those relationships. So ayahuasca has multiple uses as well, and it can not be pinned to one single use. I do want to say, and I just want to say this because I am an anthropologist and we are kind of the underdog of the whole thing. I respect all those researches and I support all of them. And I have published the results of biomedical and health studies. But I really do think that this kind of phenomena, it's important to study from a social science perspective as well, because a lot of things you're not going to grasp with those methodologies. And a lot of this research is based on like applying formulas, you know, to measure different variables and have different questionnaires. And the whole way the research is done doesn't favor these other systems of knowledge, these traditional ways of knowledge and of knowing. So I think it's really important to have a role for the social scientists in this psychedelic renaissance.
3: Well, it's also about as these things, as these drugs, psilocybin, MDMA, and maybe others, get quasi-legalized by, through the FDA process and the European equivalents, it also speaks to the importance of us continuing to allow access, or at least not to clamp down any further, on access outside quasi-medical channels, right? But still, apart from the research channels that may ultimately lead to some forms of authorized prescribing of ayahuasca, apart from the religious ones, what's your sense about the policy-legal issue? Where do you go on the whole debate over regulation and legal regulation of this, in this area, especially with ayahuasca?
1: I just wanted to go a little bit back on something we were talking about, the scientific research. I mean, in many ways, all this scientific use (laughs) or scientific experiments, it's really the outlier because people have been using this for thousands of, you know, as we said, we don't know how long, but... For generations and generations and generations. So I think there is this incredible paradox that is this incredible Western arrogance that has to say, you know, I was on a TV with like a psychiatrist and he's like, well, we don't have enough evidence of safety for ayahuasca. And I'm like, maybe you don't. And you probably will not recognize an ayahuasca vine if you see one in the forest. (laughs) But that's not the parameter of reality for you to be saying that. I was also on this other with Jeff Sabat, I think, this this debate and it's like, well, we should be very wary, you know, because these things are incredibly dangerous. Maybe it's okay for some Amazonian people, but that's not okay here in the United States. And I said, well actually maybe you're not hanging out on the right crowd, because I know a lot of people in the United States that do use these things and the sky is not following. And reality goes on. And it's important to remember that this criteria of double-blind research was created, this idea of placebo and double-blind research in the 30s and 40s, to experiment and analyze new analogs, new substances that were created. And so in many ways, this doesn't apply for substances like ayahuasca or peyote or psilocybin, where there is a huge evidence of use that trumps this kind of research. That's also my strong feeling as an anthropologist, that there is this incredible arrogance, even now, you know, in Oregon, they're saying, well, this kind of psilocybin mushroom is okay, but not this other kind, because some people find some research about something, and that's the justification. When there is generations of views of these plants, and they are considered not just important, but central to the very idea of being human, and to why we are here, and what exists in in life beyond, and they are a central part of culture and identity and territory and sociality and inter-ethnic relationships and hunting and like the cosmological ordering of the world. Why is the sky there? Why is the sun there? Why is the moon there? Why are we here? What is time? So I think we really have to expand our minds. And to me, like the scientific Research on this plant is like an exception. And in many regards, you know, an exotic thing. (laughs) I personally don't feel very comfortable in taking drugs with medical doctors on hospitals. That's not my preference setting. (laughs) That for me would be much more of an aggression to go to a hospital to take a substance. I prefer to go with shamans and people that have been doing this for a long time. And this idea that the traditional users hold some knowledge and they have to be heard And they have to be invited and they have to be respected and they have to have a seat on the table. So how do we translate all of this into actual policy? It's also a challenge and it's part of a conversation that we have to have as civil society, inviting all of these groups to sit together and create regulations that are meaningful. And it's not a bunch of armchair bureaucrats from the DEA or from the government or white medical, biomedical psychiatrists in some sophisticated university that is going to draw the rules for everybody. These conversations have to include traditional users of these substances and the populations that have been using them for a while. So I am an enthusiast of the religious and spiritual path And I think that we have a lot of potential of using this in ways that are meaningful and community-based and more holistic. And I support medical research. I am in favor of medical research. I'm not against it. I think there's a space for that. But I am against the domination of the medical experts as the sole reference of knowledge around the use of drugs.
3: Let's take a break here and go to an ad.
2: If you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids' podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby, with over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations... Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. (laughs) That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was... Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
2: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists.
3: Apart from all the spiritual mental health benefits, whether we define that in a medical sense or in a broader kind of lay sense, there's also some reports about the benefit of ayahuasca for physical health. Some suggestion that it could impact on the gut microbiome and gut bacteria, that it may be helpful with low-grade inflammation, things like that. What can you tell us about that side of things with ayahuasca?
1: I know superficially exactly these things that you say, that there's been some research around ayahuasca for these purposes. I don't know too much more. I do believe that that makes a lot of sense. If you look back at shamanism, there's also reports that people use against ayahuasca against parasites. It is a form of purging. I don't know much more. I know there's research also this group of veterans, heroic hearts was leading one of this research projects they were doing their field work in Costa Rica.
3: The organization that uh, Jesse Gould started, right? Yes, which is hearts.
1: This yeah. is so interesting and it just speaks to the power of this vibrant culture because you have different veteran organizations or different organizations of users that are so enthusiastic about it that they are also supporting research. Because a lot of this research doesn't get grants from NIDA or other government agencies, but rather is some kind of academic research self-funded, much as like MAPS has self-funded the research of MDMA for PTSD. A lot of this research on ayahuasca is done through different nonprofits and research organizations that do GoFundMe campaigns and try to fundraise to support I think everybody that is a true ayahuasca follower and enthusiast has this question that it just feels so wrong that this is illegal.
3: I mean, have you heard many stories or do you know of any research that's trying to look into this potential healing, physically healing value of
1: ayahuasca? Yes, totally. And I can tell you. And, you know, this is sad and breaks my heart. I have literally for 25 years, I receive at least one email a day of somebody that has some serious like health problem and that is looking for ayahuasca as a treatment and an option, (laughs) wanting some tip and some hope. And it's very challenging because I don't really know how to help all of these people. But that also makes me feel more encouraged to keep the work of Chikruna and you know our publications and programs and conferences and different outreach and community work because there is so much need. I believe there is a term this idea to be able to see your own organ bodies is something that is also reported in the literature. I think I forgot the name it's I believe it's something like autoscopy. It's this ability to see your own organs to sort of have this bird eye image and look and see or do a scan of your own organs. And also uh, just like ayahuasca showing to people that they have a tumor or that they have a certain pain and they go and they do exams and they find that pain and they do find there was a problem. So this is something that does happen. I mean, ultimately, I think a lot of people are trying to find a case of remission of cancer or HIV, this or that, like the case that's going to prove everything. (laughs) And that's hard as well to have theoretically somebody that has the diagnosis and go to a medical doctor and does all these tests and then drinks ayahuasca and then heals. I think those are the kinds of hard evidence to find. It's not exactly the kind of work that I do. But yes, I heard a lot of stories. But there's also stories of no success. And there's also irresponsible things like A family member that doesn't want the other family member to go to the doctor, but wants to go to drink ayahuasca and then save that person and that person doesn't get saved and dies. And this can create all kinds of liabilities. So there, you know, there is, it's a challenge and some people can become fanatical. And I think we have to keep all our options. And I think there's a danger to find a panacea or a miracle cure and stop forgetting about doctors and just go to drink ayahuasca and going to solve all your problems. I think it's also important to make a distinction between healing the disease and coming to an agreement with being sick and having a sort of feeling that's okay, and I'm going to die, and I have this, and coming to terms with that finitude of life and just learning and enjoying the end that it's going to come and there's ways to do this transition that are more smooth than others and i think that for this psychedelics can be extremely helpful and bring a lot of comfort and a lot of support and i think that particularly for people that are terminally ill there's different you know evidence that this could be incredibly helpful Again, it depends on the physical conditions, because if you're completely ill and you can't, like, you're not going to be easy to take something that is strong and it's going to make you vomit, maybe severely. And so, you know, there's a lot of angles. We mentioned that you had follow-up effects. That's also something that people should pay more attention to, because after ayahuasca ceremonies, especially if you go like on a retreat or you do a diet, you can have these benefits for weeks to come. Like, people have other kinds of sensibility and perceive things in different ways. And also sometimes have different kinds of dreams or a whole feeling to them that is kind of novel. Again, in my personal experience, I have felt a lot of benefit. And always when I come back from a diet or retreat, I can just feel my energy is entirely like reorganized. And I have this kind of Protection, this feeling that I am under this alignment and, and special sense of things being in order in ways that they were not before. And it's up to us to keep that going. And that's the famous integration or the famous homework or follow up. After you have your experiences, how are you going to keep that uh, state and those learnings and those teachings and those blessings on ongoing terms in your life? And how are you going to implement the things that you know you have to do that you are kind of frequently already knew, as a matter of fact, that are important for you to be doing? And they are our friends to keep us in this path of development and growth and spiritual connection.
3: Right. So Bia, in looking over your website, chakruna.net, earlier, I saw your mission statement. I mean, you sort of summarized it before, but you say we promote reciprocity in the psychedelic community and support the protection of sacred plants and cultural tradition. We advance psychedelic justice through curating critical conversations and uplifting the voices of women, queer people, indigenous peoples, people of color in the global South in the field of psychedelic science. And then I can see that a lot of the publications you're putting out in the events are really about helping people to do ayahuasca in a way that's both responsible for themselves and shows respect for both the indigenous communities, the sources and the traditions. This one, it's called the commodification of ayahuasca. How can we do better? And you open it up, and this is gonna be in the form of the question to you, whether you're a first timer or a seasoned veteran of these traditions, whether you're investing in an expensive Western retreat center in South or Central America, opening up a new local circle in the Bay Area, thinking of moving abroad to become a facilitator in a retreat center, starting a new transnational chapter of Brazilian ayahuasca religion in the global north, visiting a local curandero in their house, surfing the internet to pick a location for your experience, partaking in a ceremony with a traveling Brazilian indigenous group, or an itinerant ceremonial leader trying to make a living. We encourage you to explore these 14 questions with us and help ensure the future responsible ayahuasca use around the world. What are some of those key questions? For For people, whether they're a first timer or thinking the ways that you put out there, what are the pivotal questions that you want people to have in mind?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you're asking that because as you said, and you mentioned the name of the title of our event, the genie is coming out of the bottle, the genie is out of the bottle. Whether we like it or not, whether we're cool with it or not, ayahuasca uses expanding globally. I think I dare to say that, you know, in every single city of America, there's an ayahuasca ritual. I mean, we don't know because it's hard to know these kinds of things, but it's so spread and throughout the whole globe, China and uh, South Africa and Asia, in South America, it's everywhere. So whether we like it or not, it's happening. And so we have a kind of pragmatic approach in Chikrina. This globalization is happening. It's not a moral judgment. Is this right or wrong? Because guess what? You can say whatever you want. (laughs) It's not going to stop people from drinking ayahuasca. They are drinking it. So the work we're trying to do in Chikruna is real, some kind of creating safeguards, community safeguards, to soften this impact of globalization, some kind of harm reduction towards the globalization of ayahuasca and creating ways that this expansion can be done in more mindful ways. And one of the initiatives has to do with our guide for sexual abuse. We're trying to raise awareness around the topic of sexual abuse that can be quite prevalent in ayahuasca circles. We also published a document that is helping ayahuasca communities in the United States to better organize themselves as churches, as communities. So how do you keep track of your sacrament? How do you store it? How do you transport it? Uh, What kinds of waivers, liabilities? Do you have to pay taxes? Do you have to keep the information of the people that drink with you? Do you have to measure how many liters you consumed? Do you have some sort of registration of the beliefs, the spiritual doctrine of your group? So that is what we call some legal harm reduction. In terms of the commodification of ayahuasca, we encourage this ayahuasca contemporary global citizen attending hybrid places all over the world to kind of ask some key questions on the use he's doing. Where is this ayahuasca coming from? Does this group have any project that involves the conservation of ayahuasca? Does the group that is creating this ayahuasca has any kind of partnership with local indigenous people Are these local Indigenous people recognized? Is their name to the ethnic group or to the region they're at? Do you know the language of the people that you're going to visit? Are you getting informed or are these people used and tokenized in a website that is geared, you know, mainly produced by a Western audience for a Western audience? And do these projects, do these retreats or circles or communities, do they have any ways to give back So we have also created this project called the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative of the Americas that is one of our strongest programs that we have been doing for two years, which is a poll of 20 organizations that we partner with in seven countries across the Americas. And we're suggesting people that engage in plant medicine ceremonies to think of the issue of reciprocity. How can we give back? And am I honoring the people that came before me and that are the true leaders of the psychedelic movement? (laughs) Not the, the scientists that started in the 50s or now, but those are the traditional founding leaders. And we are also, you know, just creating a culture around these things. So we do a lot of events and publications, and we're trying to create some kind of cultural legitimacy around these substances. Do you have vocabulary? Where do you find information? And how do you create this cultural legitimacy? Because this is not just about this integration of this plants into the person's life and to their well-being and their personality and self-development, but it's the integration of these traditions into our culture. So we're calling it some kind of cultural therapy. Like We need to rethink of ways that we talk about these things. And the Chakruna Institute is trying to create this cultural conversations, so curating cultural conversations as plant medicines grow globally. But while doing that, trying to elevate platform and give visibility to voices of minorities, so to indigenous people, to people of color, to women, to queer people, to Mm -hmm. people from the global South.
3: Well, Bea, I should say, in looking over your website, I really was impressed because there's a lot of very nuanced discussion in there. There's a piece in there where you talk about the question, is ayahuasca endangered? And the answer is, well, yes and no. If you go to some places like around Iquitos, and I think Peru, where there's... uh, epicenter of ayahuasca-based tourism, there actually is a risk of it being less and less available and being overharvested. If you go to parts of Colombia, not really an issue. The phenomenon, it's not just grown in the wild, but you know, ayahuasca is also being cultivated. So what you describe is a fairly nuanced portrait of being sensitive to what's going on. And I think the same thing with what's happening with indigenous communities there. As you point out, for some of them, this is injecting a very destructive element of kind of commodification, commercialization, competition for higher quality quality or for the ayahuasca, higher prices, destruction of of, of long-term traditions. Yet on the other hand, it's also bringing in significant sources of revenue for these communities. It's introducing them to new possibilities. So it's a complex situation we're talking about. And I think Chikuna's voice, in terms of representing especially voices of the indigenous, of the queer, of disfavored populations, is really impressive. And I'll tell you, you're doing it in in a thoughtful and nuanced way. I think your voice being out there, you're getting ever better. And I mean, I've been following you now doing this for 15 years. I've been watching you try to build this organization. You know, you're really making a major contribution. So my final question is, when you look forward, I mean, you've been working on this stuff for maybe 20 years, jumping forward another 20 years, Bia, to uh, ayahuasca in the year 2040 or 2050. If you had to speculate or imagine, what are your predictions?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. And As I told you on different occasions, you have been an inspiration and a force for a lot of us in the drug reform movement. And so I also thank you so much for all your years of work. And I'm happy for you to be doing this podcast, which I know that you always have this double nature between your activist self and your scholar self. And now that you're a a little bit older, not old, (laughs) but retired from the DPA, (laughs) you can delve into being a good student. And uh, I really appreciate all your questions. I don't know. um, I'm sorry to end in not such a great finale. I guess I don't think a lot about that. I think that's one of the things about me that I don't really care where things are going or what's happening. Like, I have my ideas of what I think is right and I think I should do. And I think all we can do is, like, kind of hope to give our contribution to steward things in the correct way. So I am not all enthusiastic. I also have, so I am the executive director of the Chukrina Institute, and I have a part-time job as public education and cultural specialist of MAPS. At MAPS, they are super enthusiastic about mainstreaming you know, MDMA and psychedelics. I am not on that mainstreaming wagon myself. I think these things are expanding and there's a continued interest. And to me, I'm not like more happy that more people drink ayahuasca. I'm not trying to make more impact and more people have more access. I think these plants are not for everybody and they're incredibly powerful and sacred and deep and meaningful. And those of ones those of us that want to use it and those of us that have felt touched and those of us that have dreamed with the spirits of ayahuasca and been in that space, visit that reality and resonate it. We should have our rights and we should be protected. We should never be put in jail and we should have some recognition that there is something deeply noble and sacred about this path. And also we can't explore and abuse the people that taught us. There has been 500 years of colonization and indigenous people continue to be incredibly kind and receiving a bunch of like desperate white northerners full of anxieties and crisis, you know, with post-modernity and job issues and money issues and health issues and all kinds of stories. And we're still visiting the Amazon and they sit and they sing and they heal and they teach us. And for that, I am extremely grateful and I want to build paths of justice and reciprocity towards indigenous people. I want to build legal protections towards ayahuasca users. I want to build protections for queer people not to be abused by homophobe leaders and extremely patriarchal organizations. I want to build safeguards for the conservation of the plant species. And I want to celebrate and to honor the beauty of these traditions. I want to create a culture of study, of research, of incredible intellectual knowledge around these traditions, because these plants are good not just to drink and to eat and to have ex- transcendental experience. They're also good for us to think, to think reality, to study, to have intellectual inspiration to learn about the ultimate mysteries about life. And there are great resources and companions for all of this. So we're engaged in education. We're engaged in reciprocity. We're engaged in psychedelic justice, in talking about minorities and honoring the women and the elders and the people that came before us. Ayahuasca is our teacher and friend. Chakruna organization is named after ayahuasca. It's an honor and a true pleasure to serve this path. It has been incredibly rewarding.
3: And onward and forward, and onward and forward. So all of that, Pia, I say hallelujah. It sounds great. You're doing amazing stuff. So thank you ever so much for joining me on PsychoActive.
1: Thank you, Ethan. Big hug, everybody. Bye-bye.
3: If you're enjoying PsychoActive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-psycho-zero. Or you can email us at psychoactiveprotozoa.com at or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with one of America's best-known progressive prosecutors. It's Chase Boudin, the recently recalled district attorney of San Francisco. I grew up visiting my own parents in prison. My earliest memories are waiting in lines at prison gates to go through metal detectors and to get searched just to be able to see my parents, just to be able to give them hugs. So as long as I can remember, I've been impacted by and thinking about this country's response to crime and how we mete out punishment and what rehabilitation means. And I've been acutely aware of the tremendous carnage that the war on drugs has left in its wake. And when I went to law school, I wanted to try to fight to change that system. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it.
2: on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids.